and welcome back to KHM's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Friday, November 20th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Margot Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Good morning, everybody. Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. And Sarah Carlin-Smith, The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. A note about our schedule. Right behind this in our feed is our interview of Dr. Anthony Fauci by KHN Editor-in-Chief Elizabeth Rosenthal. Since we're having two podcasts this week, we will take next week off. So this will be our last podcast until December 3rd. And now, the news. I think we have to start with COVID, which is bad and getting worse. The U.S. passed the 250,000 death mark this week, and one of those maps showing different shades of red had to come up with a whole new color for the upper Midwest and the West, where COVID is spreading at a truly terrifying rate. Wyoming had a test positivity rate of 92% on Wednesday. In Iowa, it was 50%. Deaths, which lag several weeks behind reported cases, are also starting to climb. The Atlantic reports they could reach 2,000 per day in the coming weeks, and that's before taking Thanksgiving into account. Things in most places are worse now than they were at the height of the spikes during the spring and summer, and yet it feels like people are taking it far less seriously. Is there any way to get people to recognize the danger and take precautions? I think at this point you can't really blame it on not great public health messaging. When numbers get this huge, it is kind of numbing. And so people are just trying so many different things to really drive at home. There's entire Twitter accounts that just posts bios of the people who have died, you know, with their photo. There were efforts in D.C. to put out the number of little white flags to represent the people who have died or empty chairs. I've heard epidemiologists talk about, you know, it's like this number of plane crashes a day. There's just so many different ways to help the numbers have some emotional resonance because I completely understand, you know, when numbers are this big and this relentless, it does get numbing and it is hard to wrap your brain around it. Let me say this. I am freaked out at this point. And and yet I can't understand why everybody else isn't freaked out too. Even at the White House COVID task force briefing, Deborah Burks came out and said, really, things are bad. Don't have Thanksgiving with lots of people. And yet, you know, you turn around and there are all these Thanksgiving ads and commercials with people getting together. And I got stuck in a traffic jam on the Beltway last night. I mean, people are just not paying attention or they're just paying attention and saying, I don't care. I think we are seeing a lot more public officials reacting to this huge surge in cases. I think the, you know, the task force, the White House task force coming out and saying that they were really concerned about it actually is a really big change. I mean, the president has continued to say, you know, we're turning the corner. This is no big deal. Everything is fine. I think him allowing them to have a press conference and then having the contents of that press conference be this is really bad is kind of important. CDC officials also had a press conference yesterday, the first time in months. Um, and they really clearly said, don't don't travel for Thanksgiving. I think these are strong public health messages that are coming out of Washington for the first time in a long time. And we're also seeing a lot of governors of Midwestern states that I think had resisted uh, having mask mandates, uh, closing down businesses, or issuing any kind of public health guidance that might interfere with business or that might seem offensive to people who are very concerned about personal liberty. 
they're really changing their tune. So I think, Julie, I, I, I mildly disagree with you. I think um, there is a lot of COVID fatigue among the public. And I do think we see people uh, maybe being a little bit more lax in their daily lives, you know, here where things are worse, but not terrible. But I think that we're starting to see a kind of real government public health response, maybe a little bit too late. But around the country, I do think that governors and mayors and even federal officials are really stepping up the warnings and trying to put in place policies that will try to stem this really uh, dramatic rise in cases and expected rise in hospitalizations and deaths. But the government is still not speaking with one voice. You know, on the same day that the CDC said, don't travel for Thanksgiving, things are really serious, this is really dangerous, you had the White House press secretary calling any restrictions or recommendations about Thanksgiving Orwellian. And so, you know, we're still not having consistent messaging across the government. And I think that leads to people feeling a little more free to pick and choose which message they want to listen to. And some of the orders that came out of the Midwestern states did seem more consistent in terms of having science and um, reason behind them. But a lot of states are doing things that are confusing to people and don't make a lot of sense and lead to bad behavior. Schools are closing, but restaurants and bars for indoor service are still open or they're shutting them down at 10 p.m. And people are making jokes like, is COVID more contagious after 10 p.m.? And I think there's some logic behind that in that, you know, if you're out drinking after 10 p.m., you know, you're maybe going to be having more drinks and not considering your behavior as well. But there's just a lot of inconsistent messaging in this country about what is and isn't safe. And just merely by letting certain things continue that, you know, a lot of public health experts say shouldn't be continuing now. We're giving people conflicting messages. We're saying don't gather in your home with 10 people, you know, your family members. But if you could still go to a restaurant with them, I'm not sure that makes sense to people as to why one is okay or not. There's also the problem of they're now seeing cases of outdoor transmission because people are too close together and they don't have masks. It's not that outdoors is magic when you walk outside. It was interesting because there were a lot of sort of stories about curfews this week and people saying, you know, that's kind of silly. Although Dr. Fauci in his interview with Libby did say that there is a concern and that there apparently is scientific evidence that sort of the later into the evening you get, the more people drink, the less careful they get, and that cutting things off earlier um, actually could help people, you know, uh, behave better. I have some questions about the curfews for gyms, though. (laughs) Are they, are people drinking at the gym? (laughs) You never know. But yes, I I do see that. Yeah, the curfews for the bars maybe make sense. The curfews for the gyms, I look at this as an extension of the not quite stay at home order, which is just to restrict people from mingling at all. So so I think in that sense that the gym counts. I think there's also, you know, the restaurant industry is in real trouble. Um, I think, you know, setting aside COVID for a moment, which is a big thing to set aside. I mean, this is an industry that has seen enormous drops in revenue that employs large numbers of people. And, you know, I think they kind of muddled through the spring because they got a lot of federal assistance. And then they kind of some of them closed, but some of them muddled through the summer because they had outdoor dining as an option. And between outdoor dining and takeout, they were sort of able to stay afloat. But I think part of what we're seeing in a reluctance to have public health orders to close down restaurants is a recognition by the government that 
a lot of these small businesses that employ a lot of people and generate a lot of economic activity and pay taxes to state and local governments are basically going to go out of business if they are closed. I think these are businesses that just don't have a lot more room to lose money. And if people are not allowed to eat in them, they are going to be in trouble. Now, I think given the emergency that we are facing in some of these states from a public health perspective, that has to be counterbalanced against the risk to life and health. But I think that one way of understanding the reluctance to close restaurants, even in places that have a lot of COVID spread, is to understand the economic pressures and understand the real business threat to the restaurant industry, which I think industry is always complaining about how they're facing all these terrible pressures. But I think the evidence is overwhelming that, you know, the majority of independent restaurants are likely to close uh, if there's another shutdown. And it's not just the business impact, uh, Margo, as you mentioned, it's the taxes from these businesses that go to these state and local governments that are also suffering now. And there's sort of a circular effect because these states and local governments need certain workforces to help with the pandemic, and they've had to do furloughs and layoffs as well. So for a state to close down schools, there's no economic impact to that locality, but there is an economic impact to the state government for closing down certain businesses as well. And without, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about Congress's inability to get some kind of next stimulus package together to help localities. And without that money, it's kind of hard for states to close everything down and sort of self-sabotage their own economic states. You know, a lot of public health professionals, rather most notably Michael Osterholm at the University of Minnesota, has suggested that we close the bars and restaurants and pay them to be closed. And that's part of why the Democrats in their bill, which keeps getting reviled, I mean, the House Democrats in their bill, keeps getting reviled by the administration, want to give money to states and localities to make up for the tax losses that you're talking about, Sarah, so that the the states and localities won't feel so pressured to keep their restaurants open. And if the restaurants can keep themselves, you know, above water and keep their employees paid, you know, then you could sort of mitigate the public health threat. But Congress just seems unwilling to go there. Alice, is there is there any movement on this now that the election is kind of over? Not really. Mnuchin said this morning that he is talking to Republican leaders and they're making plans to talk to Democratic leaders. But really, people are quite pessimistic up on the Hill. And what we're seeing now is sort of the worst of both worlds. You know, states are kind of doing these half measures like capacity restrictions, like the curfews. And those neither support the business economically to the level that it needs, given that restaurants and bars operate on, you know, razor thin margins pre-pandemic. And so these partial restrictions, they may be open, but their business is not thriving. And also it doesn't fully prevent transmission. And so you're neither getting the economic piece taken care of, nor the public health piece. You're in the worst of both worlds. And yes, if Congress could support these businesses temporarily closing completely, you know, we could potentially get the public health side of it under control without the economic pain. Yes, somehow that doesn't seem to be getting through. Well, one of the scariest parts of the fact that so much of the country is now in the throes of COVID spike is that there are simply not enough health workers to care for them. It's all well and good to have, you know, uh, surge capacity, you know, beds in, in convention centers and ventilators, as the president keeps talking about. But if there's no one to staff them, it's not very, very useful. And doctors and nurses and therapists are not only overworked, they're getting sick too. Could we actually run out of health care in the U.S.? if something doesn't happen? So very early in the pandemic, I worked on a project with some colleagues based on research from the Harvard Global Health Institute, where they were sort of modeling, 
you know, what would happen to hospital capacity if the COVID uh, infection rate reached certain thresholds over certain periods of time. And what we saw is that basically there were almost everywhere in the country was going to run out of beds, run out of personnel if we had widespread uncontrolled spread of the virus. And I think the reason why those researchers released that study and the reason why we thought it was useful to publish is I think it's a really clear illustration of why we were all talking about flattening the curve early on in the pandemic was this idea that like, this is a contagious disease until we have a vaccine. Probably a lot of people are going to get it, but we don't want them to all get it at once. We want them to spread it out so that there is enough capacity to take care of the people who got sick. And what we saw early on is, of course, there was this enormous surge in the Northeast and particularly in New York City, where there was something like, you know, six times the number of people died that normally would die in New York City uh, in a couple during a couple of weeks. But what happened is, the physical surge was possible because there was contingency planning and there were convention centers and the federal government lent some facilities. And then there was able to be a personnel surge because traveling nurses and doctors came from all over the country to help out. What we're seeing now is much more like the scenario in those maps that we published in, um, you know, early in the pandemic, where we're basically seeing hospital capacity is running out in lots of places at the same time. And I think that that is a much harder problem to solve. As you say, Julie, I think that hospital administrators have had time to think about the physical changes that they can make. So they could convert uh, recovery rooms from surgery into ICU rooms. They can, you know, build a tent outside. They can segregate uh, certain populations from other populations. There's a lot that they have learned how to do about that stuff. But at the end of the day, when you have patients who require critical care, you need personnel available to care for them who have that level of training. And that is a very hard thing to surge. You can bring in people who are less qualified, uh, who can do some of the care, but then the quality of care declines. And at a certain point, you really just run out of people. And I think, again, what we saw early in the pandemic in New York City, in Italy, in Spain, in some of these places that have, even in China, had really bad early outbreaks is that the fatality rate from this disease was super high. And I think a big reason why it was high was because the hospitals and the hospital staff were just stretched beyond capacity. They did not have enough resources to give everyone the highest level of care. And I think we are at risk of seeing a scenario like that in the Midwest quite soon if the numbers don't get more under control. Also, the fact that the curve never really flattened, that these people have been working pretty much nonstop since March. I can't, I cannot imagine. I know how exhausted I am and I am not doing, you know, anywhere near what these folks are doing. They're separated from their families in lots of cases. I mean, it is just endless. We keep seeing all of these healthcare workers, you know, begging people to please stop partying and congregating. Um, Sarah, did you want to add something? I was going to say, and it's it's not just the care of COVID patients that may start to slip in some of these places. I was on an event last night with um, Biden's, one of Biden's COVID advisors, Michael Osterholm, and he was saying there are places in the country right now where you really don't want to get into a car accident. You really don't want to have a heart attack because we are running out of people to care for you. And that's really scary. And you, we've also seen reports, I think the Mayo Clinic, for example, has 900, probably more by the time we're recording this, of workers infected with COVID-19. We've had states say nurses with COVID-19 can actually continue working because they need people to care for the patients. So I think, again, people have been focused very much on how many ICU beds are available, but those beds don't matter if you don't have the appropriate workers to help care for patients. When we think about personnel, we think about doctors and nurses and respiratory therapists, but there are other people working to mitigate this pandemic. So 
most states are dependent on National Guard's men and women for a lot of this work. They're running testing sites, they're assisting hospitals, they're delivering supplies to hospitals, and the federal support for the Guard troops, there's about 20,000 deployed right now doing COVID work, that is set to expire at the end of the year, and the Trump administration has not said whether or not they'll allow an extension. Now, Biden said for the first time Thursday afternoon, that he plans to authorize the funding when he's president, but states are really freaked out about a lapse between December 31st and the inauguration in late January. And that would come at the worst possible time, as we're talking about with winter and people gathering indoors and people gathering with their families and cases going up massively. And so, you know, if the federal funding for all those guard troops doing this work, supporting overwhelmed hospitals, you know, lapses, even for just a few weeks, it could be really devastating. So that's something I'm tracking. Is that something Congress could fix? There is this uh, government shutdown looming. <laughs> yeah. So so there was a bill introduced uh, earlier this year to to extend the federal authorization that has really not gone anywhere. And the Trump administration has approved several short term extensions throughout this year and could still authorize another one. But with the funding expiring in less than six weeks, states are really starting to be alarmed. Also, the Trump administration earlier this year cut the funding for most states and required them to pay 25% of the cost of the Guard's work, which comes at a really hard time. You know, as we've been saying, state budgets are just walloped right now. And um, so there are concerns on that front as well. Indeed. All right. Well, this has all been very grim, but there at least is some good news on the COVID front. We have a second vaccine that apparently works well, made by Moderna, according to the company's results. And unlike the Pfizer vaccine that we learned about last week, the Moderna vaccine doesn't have to be kept ultra cold. Meanwhile, the Pfizer vaccine is apparently headed to the FDA for an emergency use authorization, I believe today, I just saw before we started taping. Um, This is good, good news. Right, Sarah? Yeah, I mean, it it is sort of the light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I think Dr. Fauci said the Calvary is coming on the podcast. These vaccines work a lot better than people I think were initially expecting. There's still a lot we don't know about them. We have minimal data on things like durability how long they'll work for. Um, We'd love to get more data on certain populations and safety information, but it looks really promising. The big thing I think now that people need to understand is we don't have a ton of doses to give out right away. It's probably going to be months to next spring or summer before large portions of our um, population are vaccinated. So it's kind of all about getting through this next period so we can kind of keep people alive to get to the vaccine. And FDA is working incredibly fast. There's been reports that they'll have their advisory committee convene around December 8th or 9th to review this. So we could, I think, foreseeably see an approval or an emergency use authorization, not a full approval, um, sometime in December. And some small portions of the population will start getting vaccinated the end of this year early 2021. Yeah, some of those. So, of course, while it's great that vaccines are on the way, getting it from the manufacturer into people is going to be quite the effort. Um, What's the latest on distribution plans and how is the delay in the transition? Trump officials still can't legally talk to Biden officials impacting that. I would think this would be sort of the the biggest potential difficulty in the fact that the transition has not officially begun. 
ProPublica had a really good article about this where they kind of looked at different states have different plans. This is like so many other things, like a non-centralized process. So states get allocation of vaccines and they're all responsible for having their own priority lists of who gets it first and their own distribution plans about how it's getting from place to place. And the ProPublica uh, article was focused on the Pfizer vaccine, which I think does have more difficult logistics, as you said, Julie, because it has to be kept at these super cool temperatures and has a limited shelf life. But essentially what they found is that a lot of states are really ill-equipped to handle this and that there are going to be particular problems with distribution of vaccine into rural areas because it's, you know, the way that Pfizer wants to manufacture the vaccine is they want to ship it in these kind of large batches that have a limited shelf life. And so how do you distribute a thousand doses in a place that doesn't have a lot of people? Um, I just think uh, the science part of this has been kind of extraordinary. I mean, I really think that almost everyone uh, who's been paying attention to this and who knows about vaccines is just, you know, surprised and delighted to see two vaccine candidates develop this quickly with these kinds of preliminary effectiveness and safety results. Again, we should wait to be super excited, but I think we could be a little bit excited. Uh, but I think that the kind of logistics and distribution is actually a huge challenge. The people who are in charge of that are completely different people. And I think a lot of it is sort of happening behind the scenes in a way that we can't scrutinize as closely. And it is the kind of thing that the Trump administration has really struggled with all along. If you think about the way that they tried to uh, manufacture and roll out uh, personal protective equipment, ventilators, other kinds of things, you know, there were just a million stories about kind of scammy people being involved, defective items, uh, political uh, influence over who was getting what at what time. And so I do think this is hard and it's a little bit hard to scrutinize in advance. And it's really, really important. And I, I do think, as you asked, Julie, that the failure of the Trump administration to brief the Biden transition officials is going to make it very hard for them to quickly pick up the ball when they take over in a couple of months. So the Biden team is really focused on, you know, sort of the communications piece of this, both how to one, make sure the public doesn't hear, oh, a vaccine is coming. I can just do whatever now because the cavalry is coming. And so I don't need to wear a mask or social distance. And so every time he speaks, he really stresses for most people, it's going to be many, many, many more months, you know, well into 2021. And so we can't let our guard down. We can't let up now. We have to stay safe until then, they're also really focused on how do we make sure people are willing to take the vaccine when it's available. There's lots of polling showing wide levels of skepticism and vaccine hesitancy above the vaccine hesitancy that people had before the pandemic, which was already scarily high for other vaccines. But, you know, because of the political debates about this in particular and the Trump administration making all kinds of unsubstantiated claims earlier in the year, you know, there is just a lot of trust. And so Biden's team is really thinking we need to have the scientists deliver information on this, not the politicians, you know, once we take over. And they're really thinking through how do we talk about this in a way that will restore public trust. To your and Margot's point, too, they're also really making their primary argument that the transition should be allowed to proceed all about the vaccine and the COVID response handoff and, uh, you know, the damage it's doing to delay this transition. I mean, we're looking now, you know, they might not certify <laughs> the results of the election and allow the transition to proceed until, you know, the electoral college does its thing in December. So that 
gives the Biden team very little time to prepare and to talk with these agencies. And so they're doing this full court press. You see people going on TV, including Republicans. You know, you have Republicans like Larry Hogan and John Kasich, who've been friendlier to Biden, you know, going on TV and saying, you know, this is a really dangerous thing. You also have the Trump administration publicly pushing back and saying everything's fine. We've got it under control. This scaremongering about the transition delay is is bogus. And so, um, you know, this 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 is really troubling. And, you know, just just to reiterate, um, Biden's team can't meet with the federal agencies who are working on this right now. They can't know what they're planning, uh, what's been done, what what still needs to be done. They also don't have access to any non-public data on everything from hospital capacity to vaccine plans, you know, to any of this. So this is going to be a, a big issue going forward. And we should point out that we're having a mini super spreader event on Capitol Hill. There have been, I think we're up to nine members of Congress, uh, seven House members and two senators tested COVID positive this week, including uh, Florida Senator Rick Scott just this morning, which could also, you know, impact Congress's ability to actually get things done. Before we leave the uh, the vaccine beat, Margot, I'm going to let you do your extra credit early because it's about the vaccine. Oh, sure. This was such a delightful story uh, in the Washington Post uh, from Timothy Bella about uh, Dolly Parton, who uh, donated money to Vanderbilt Medical Center uh, to help with the early stages of the Moderna vaccine development. And I think what's nice about the story is that her decision to uh, give this money was not so much motivated by COVID as it was with the personal relationship that she developed with a doctor who cared for her when she was in a car accident several decades ago and who she has had uh, sort of ongoing and longstanding friendship with. I don't know uh, if any of you guys listen, but there is a really wonderful NPR podcast called Dolly Parton's America that uh, sort of focused a little bit on this relationship. But Dolly Parton is obviously this country music superstar who grew up uh, in poverty in rural Tennessee. And this doctor, Naji Abumrad, grew up in uh, a rural mountain town in Lebanon. And uh, the two of them really bonded over having this kind of shared experience of living in a similar kind of place and achieving success. And it's just a very nice uh, human story and also kind of a fun detail that Dolly Parton has a small role in the development of this uh, really wonderful vaccine. So when you get your vaccine, you can play a Dolly Parton song. Is she going to be our um, Elvis? Is she going to get vaccinated <laughs> on camera? I mean, if anyone is our Elvis, it should be her, right? Yes, I, I think that the distinct possibility. All right. Well, there is some non-COVID news this week. Uh, Amazon announced it will start selling prescription drugs. If it weren't this crazy wild news week, I imagine this would have been a much bigger story. Uh, we actually talked about this. I had to go look it up back in 2017 when Amazon first got approved for wholesale distribution in a number of states. And again in 2018 when Amazon bought the online pharmacy pill pack. Now they've unveiled Amazon Pharmacy, which will deliver drugs for free for Prime members. Um, what could this mean for drug prices and drug stores? I mean, this was they people look at Amazon people who people who compete with Amazon look at Amazon in terror. Yes. Yes. I remember when Amazon uh, first entered the uh, they said that they wanted to do some experiment in reinventing health insurance and like all of the stocks moved for all of the large insurers. And then they basically did nothing. This one, I think, is a little bit less clear. It, it seems like they're still kind of working through the existing PBM system. They're just kind of doing the 
distribution part uh, maybe a little bit better so they can, you know, there's lots of places you can get mail in prescriptions, but maybe Amazon will get it to you faster and they have this big customer base. But I think it is like to be seen whether they actually are doing anything that's disruptive to the kind of drug purchasing side of things. I don't know, Sarah, do you have more insight? Yeah, I guess I'm still questioning whether they can actually do anything to lower prices. Um, To do that, they'd probably have to get a certain amount of market share and potentially even like develop their own plans and somehow like basically be selling like Medicare Part D plans or something like that. So they have more control over the formularies to actually lower prices. The other thing I think to think about, like if you think about a CVS, which obviously has a lot of the market here is that CVS is now, you know, they're part of a big health insurance company, PBM, retail pharmacy. So they're able to sort of funnel their patients to their pharmacies in a way that Amazon, again, right now won't have the ability to do. So I know like at one point I was on a health plan where essentially, you know, after a certain amount of fills of a chronic medicine, you sort of had to like get that health plan's mail away or else you paid a much higher price. So it's going to be tricky, I think, for Amazon to fully capitalize and find a way to lower patients' prices immediately. That doesn't mean long-term. Amazon's obviously been very successful at putting a lot of different industries out of business, but I think it's a long road for them to figure out what is a extra complicated business, as we all know. So meanwhile, we are learning this morning that the president this afternoon is going to unveil the drug price regulation that a lot of us have been waiting for and that we've talked about a good bit here that would basically tie U.S. drug prices to price controlled prices overseas, not something that the drug industry is really thrilled about. Why is he doing this now? Well, there's been um, some reporting from outlets. I know Politico reported a little bit about this, that it's sort of a payback potentially very... um, childlike, perhaps, um, decision that, um, you know, the Trump administration has been kind of annoyed that Pfizer um, announced the very positive news about their vaccine just a number, couple of days after the election. And because of some decisions Pfizer made, it is possible they could have announced some similarly positive news before the election. So there is a thought that going on here that, you know, this is sort of retribution (laughs) from the president. Um, The other thing we um, talked about a little bit before we started recording was, you know, does Trump want to give this impression that, you know, he really did earn another term and is going to be around to keep governing because it's unclear how, if this regulation will actually take effect and have impact if another administration comes in, they may not go through with it or defend any legal challenges that come against it. And there will be legal challenges to this, right? Oh, yeah. (laughs) The drug industry is not going to take this one um, sitting down. They certainly don't like it and they'll have lots of ability to challenge it legally. One big thing is we're expecting this regulation to be issued as an interim final rule. Um, There was an advanced notice of proposed rulemaking a few years ago, but we never actually saw a proposed rule where people got time to comment on it and given feedback. So there's a good chance it's seen as like violating the procedures around rulemaking in this country. Interim final rules can be done kind of under these emergency public health situations like we're in with COVID. But it's not really clear that this has anything, you know, there's no real connection between this drug pricing rule and the current COVID health emergency. So I think that'll be a challenge legally to defend in court. 
I think we also can't escape the possibility that the president just really cares about this. Um, you know, I think unlike a lot of other areas of health policy, his anger about high drug prices and his desire to lower them is something that has been a through line of his entire uh, political career. I mean, it was something he was talking about through the entire 2016 presidential campaign. He's talked about in public numerous times throughout his presidency. When you talk with people who speak with the president about healthcare agenda, he said they say he brings it up every single time. And this particular approach, this kind of most favored nation approach, is something that he has been talking about publicly for several years, even when there was no policy to match it. So I think that, you know, all of the considerations that Sarah mentioned, I think, are also um, in play here. But I think that we should at least uh, consider the possibility the president just really thinks this is the right thing to do and wants to get it done uh, before the end of his first term. I did a piece a couple of weeks ago on, you know, if Trump was reelected, what a second term health agenda would look like. And I talked to a number of people, all of whom said, yeah, the president just hasn't put in the work on a lot of this. It's it's not, you know, it's not like immigration to him, except on drug prices. He really, really, really cares about drug prices. Um, although I, I personally kind of subscribe to the idea that they're also doing this because they do want to sort of keep up this, uh, the, the optics of there will be a second Trump term and unveiling sort of big, big policy agenda items like this. Or even if he thinks that he's going to, you know, he, he did lose this election, but he might want to run again. We'd be remiss if we didn't point out that with this most favored nation idea, it's actually very similar to an idea passed by the House of Representatives in a bill earlier this year, or maybe late. 2019 at this point. Oh, gosh. It was time, last year. Yeah, the time is so <laughs> no. hard to keep track of. But so this is an idea that um, in some ways Joe Biden also campaign platform endorsed. It, it would be interesting to see how a Biden administration would deal with this final rule. Like, would they feel compelled to defend it in court and so forth? Because it, it is actually an idea that has more resonance with Democrats than Republicans. Yeah, which is another interesting question. You know, would they? There, there's a number of regulations that are more attractive to Democrats than Republicans, and they might want to, you know, if not keep them, they could, you know, use sort of the foundation. Although, as you say, if they are viola- violating the Administrative Procedure Act with this, um, the Biden administration might have to start over again anyway. Yeah, the tr- it seems like the Trump administration on a lot of these regulatory matters is really putting the Bi- the future Biden administration in a tough spot because I think that the Biden folks may not object to rules like this on the policy, on the substance, but in terms of the process, um, they may feel, you know, this is the kind of thing that uh, probably should be done through legislation, not through rulemaking. Um, you know, it's a big change to the way that the government purchases uh, drugs. And there may be ways through the Innovation Center. I mean, there are, you know, every administration is always trying to find ways to use the regulatory process to achieve as much policy as they can, because it's hard to pass laws through Congress. Um, but I think the Biden administration is going to have some tough, tough decisions about several of these policies that they may like, or at least not dislike, but they may not want to have to defend in court because they're on kind of tenuous legal ground. And also because they're going to have a lot to do, um, which I think is, <laughs> I mean, it is. I mean, part of it is how many resources, you know, just time and effort you want to uh, devote to some of these things, and they're going to have to pick and choose at some point. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash what the health. Margo, you did yours already. Alice why don't you go next? 
Sure. So I uh, have a story that uh, Margot was part of. Um, it's a great story. The New York Times interviewed 635 epidemiologists, or they collected responses um, on what they're doing for Thanksgiving. You know, this is something that is a hot topic of debate. We we spoke earlier about the conflicting messages from the Trump administration about this and and, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of doctors saying on social media that they're having patients come in and get tested because they still plan to travel for Thanksgiving. And this is really scary. And so basically the vast majority of people who responded in this survey said they are either just having Thanksgiving with the people they already live with or not at all. Um, you know, and then some described these measures they're taking to be able to see other people, such as having it outside in a garage with the door open, um, such as having it in a sort of tent with, you know, air filters running or having it not as a dinner, but just as, you know, having some snacks outside and distance together to just be able to see each other. But it's really hard and something that they stress and, you know, others are stressing and we should all be stressing is that, you know, none of these safety precautions individually, like we said earlier, are magic. Just being outdoors is better, but it's not magic. Just wearing a mask is obviously very helpful, but it's not magic. You could layer all these things on top of each other, but nothing is completely safe, which is why the recommendation right now is don't travel, don't really have people outside your household gathering together. Obviously, the worst scenario is people gathering indoors for a long period of time, unmasked with people mixing households. But, you know, this is this is really hard and really painful. And a lot of people live alone and are worried about people's mental health. And there's a lot of focus on using technology and Zoom and FaceTime to be able to feel like you're with other people. But with the vaccine on the way, a lot of the messaging right now is this is a temporary sacrifice so that we can be together in person in the future. Future. Otherwise, the risk is that people will get infected and not make it and not be able to gather in the future. And this is a, a painful conversation, but a lot of good information in this article. We as a society are not great at delayed gratification. Um, Sarah. So I looked at a story from Vox called um, Social Distancing is a Luxury Many Can't Afford. Vermont actually did something about it. I found it really interesting because I think I just assumed when I would look at the maps and see Vermont often doing better than the rest of the country, they're just a small state. They don't have many people. It's very rural. But actually, this piece compared it to a number of states, sort of similar population and size and found, no, it really is doing much better. And for proactive reasons that the state really invested in public health for the people that don't have the luxury to social distance to just simply follow the dictates. And it goes back to this idea in public health that you can't just tell people what to do, you actually have to help them get there. So the state, um, instead of just sort of looking for, assuming people would go find testing if there was an outbreak in an area, they brought testing to areas where the outbreak was occurring. They opened motels for people who were homeless. They increased hazard pay for people who were working in jobs on the front line. They're trying to see if they can sort of give people stipends potentially to help them survive a need to quarantine and isolate and so forth. And I think it just points to some of the things our country kind of hasn't followed through with um, in this crisis, which is, and we've seen it bear out in the statistics, you know, this is an issue of health equity, people that are fortunate, um, like us to have jobs where you can kind of work from home, you can hunker down, you can get your salary, 
are tend to be doing quite well and people that still need to go to work in a grocery store or driving public transportation and just don't have the same level of resources may be getting sick sort of through no fault of their own. And we as a society have to think about how to better support those people so that we can all do better in this crisis. Well, that leads very nicely into mine, uh, which is from our podcast colleague, Joanne Cannon at Politico. It's called The Biden Advisor Focused on the Pandemic's Stark Racial Disparities. It's about Yale researcher Dr. Marcela Nunez-Smith, one of the leaders of the president-elect's COVID task force and one of the public health experts who's been focusing on the pandemic's disproportionate impact on low-income people and people of color. Minorities, particularly African-Americans, tend to have less trust in the health system, less access to health care, and are more likely to work in jobs that require them to leave home every day. We've talked a lot about health equity this year. This, I think, is a signal from the incoming Biden administration that they consider this an important part of the effort to control the virus. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us, too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who makes us all sound okay even when we're in different places need to double duty this week so two thank yous also as always you can email us your comments or questions we're at what the health all one word at kff.org or you can tweet me i'm at jay rovner sarah i'm at sarah carlin k-a-r-l-i-n margo at sanger Katz. alice at alice olstein just a reminder we'll be back in your feed december 3rd have a safe and happy holiday and more than ever in the meantime be healthy be healthy